Let's pray. Father, you are a God in whom is life. And you are a God who speaks. A God who has revealed himself in all his glory, sufficient that we might know you and our need of you for life. And so, Father, as we turn to your word in which all of this is contained, we ask, God, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that might engage, minds that might comprehend all that you desire for us to know of yourself and of our need for your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the book of Exodus and chapter 11. Exodus 11, this morning we arrive at the final plague of Egypt and God's subsequent provision made for his people. And if you were with us last week, then you'll recall how we examined the other nine expressions of God's sovereignty. Ten, if we count Moses and Aaron's initial demonstration in the staff snake display we discussed. And to this point, what we've observed has been in these signs, God's supremacy over all, his sovereignty. We've seen God's sovereignty. While people may appear to have power, God alone, we said, has true power. We're able, much like Pharaoh's magicians, to imitate God's ability. But in the end, our parlor tricks are devoid of true power. We remain weak Our strength, nothing more than bravado over which we have little control. But in his interactions with Pharaoh, we've watched God reveal his sovereignty over all, over the waters, over amphibians, insects, animals, disease, the weather, light. God is sovereign, and he is able to do all his holy will. And today, we come to the final display of God's power over Egypt, the act towards which, as we saw last week, everything has been building and in which I believe we're going to see God reveal that He is a God who is sovereign over people, whom He judges justly and saves graciously. Whom He judges justly and saves graciously. So I invite you to follow along. I'm going to read from verse 1 there in chapter 11. Our scriptures say, Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. 
The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, in these 10 verses, God announces the final display of his power over Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, an act by which I believe God reveals that he is a God who judges justly. If you've been with us, I've been walking through this series taken from the book of Exodus. We've seen God's revelation of himself and his attributes in a number of different ways. And this morning we see that the God of the Bible judges justly. And this is our first point for this morning. For what I believe we have here in chapter 11 is the declaration of God's final plague stated in verses 4 through 8. And we're going to examine those in just a moment. However, this statement is sandwiched, if you will, between two reminders of what has previously been revealed. The first reminder is given us in verse 1 through 3, where the text confirms the efficacy of the final experience. The tenth time's the charm, so to speak. These verses here, 1 through 3, make clear that following this final plague, the exodus will happen. And the people will be financially prepared because their Egyptian neighbors are going to supply them with all manner of gold and silver materials. And it's interesting to note there that not only will the Egyptians be favorably disposed towards Israel as expressed by their material generosity, but they and their leadership will also show deference to Moses, seemingly over Pharaoh. Because you look at verse 3, it reads that the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. And so, clearly the officials knew what Pharaoh's pride had prevented him from, from seeing, and that is that Moses' God was sovereign. And so, the first reminder here speaks to the truth of all that God has promised to this point. This plague will lead to Israel's exodus. The second reminder, then, is given to us, I believe, in verses 9 and 10. And it reiterates why the previous nine displays of God's sovereignty haven't resulted in Israel's rescue. Because this was the Lord's plan from the get-go. From Moses' first encounter with Yahweh in Midian, recorded back in chapter 3 and verse 19, we saw together that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. And so I, that's Yahweh speaking at this time, will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And so from before Moses had even accepted the job, he knew the outcome and that it wouldn't be instantaneous, but would come as the culmination of process. And here in verse 9 and 10, this truth is reiterated. Now, at this point, we might wonder, and rightly so, well, what's the point of these reminders? I'm sure it's helpful, and it ensures that we don't forget, but our memories aren't that poor. Why restate facts that have already been restated, in some cases several times? And friends, I believe the reason is to show us as the readers today that not only can we trust God as things happen, such as we see occurring in our text here, but that we can know him as the one who makes things happen. Thus, as he promised Moses from the very beginning, everything that we are reading about here in Exodus chapter 11 was the result of God's handiwork. Moses' experience came about just as God 
had promised. Now, did this mean that Moses knew everything that he would encounter in Egypt all along the way? And if you've been with us through this series, you'll know the answer is a resounding what? No, No, absolutely not. God told him what would happen and how it would happen, but there were certainly gaps in the story, weren't there? Details of which Moses was unaware, which led him to respond at times, as we've seen, with frustration and fear. And church, don't, don't we respond so often like Moses? We who've been given God's word, who know that God has won, that he's defeated death and therefore we have nothing to fear, who, who know that God is for us and therefore none can stand against us and who have been called to go and make disciples of nations. Church, don't we already know the end of the story? Hasn't God already told us? And yet there are details which we desire that pertain to our lives, but we don't have. And these trip us up, leading to doubt and despair. Is this how you might feel this morning? No, maybe you've been struggling with a circumstance that, like Moses, you may not have anticipated. Be reminded, God is sovereign. He may be trusted as things happen because He is the God who makes things happen. We're given two reminders in these ten verses. But as I said, sandwiched in the middle, if you will, is the main point. That is the announcement of the tenth plague, an announcement in which I believe... God reveals himself to be a God who judges justly. And so let me show you why. Would you look back at verse 4 there in our text? It's here that Moses says, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. Now, as we know, this plague is the culmination of God's rescue plan. And, And we know that it comes as a result of Pharaoh's obstinance. However, based simply upon our text today, Exodus 11, we would be hard-pressed to establish the fact that God judges justly. Because while it is clearly inferred that Pharaoh has rejected God's request to this point, the death of a firstborn is hard to reconcile, no matter how you want to look at it, with justice for what appears to be mere stubbornness as reflected in our text. And this is where I believe the reminders help us. For if we follow those back to chapter 4, And verse 22, we read there God's initial instructions to Moses to say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you what, let my people go so he may worship me. But you refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. In this request, chapter 4 of Pharaoh, God made clear who he was in relation to Israel. He's their father. Israel is to Yahweh as Pharaoh's own son was to him. And thus Pharaoh's refusal to free the Israelites was an act of deliberate disobedience with consequences of which he had been forewarned. And therefore, God's final plague upon Egypt was an act of judgment that was wholly just. It was like being asked to sit down after failing to follow Simon Says. No different. And not only was God's judgment just, church, but I believe this act reveals three further things about the nature of God's just judgment. With the first being this. God's judgment is specific. The God of the Bible's judgment 
is specific. You notice how Moses is directed to detail exactly who will die? Every firstborn son in Egypt, from the firstborn of son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the, the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. God specifically names who will die so that there can be no misunderstanding for who is responsible both for meeting out and receiving this judgment. God's just judgment, church, is specific. And guys, how refreshing is it to know that the God of the Bible's judgment is specific? He has made clear his expectations for his creation. As the God who alone is, without dependence upon any one or thing, he is perfect and without flaw or failing. And thus, he cannot be in the presence of any one or thing that is less than perfect. That's why Jesus told his listeners in Matthew 5, 48, be what? Perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And, and, and as great as this specificity is an expectation, it's even greater to know specifically what will happen when we fail to be perfect. First, Paul tells us in Romans 6, the wages of sin, so that's any and all failure to conform to God's perfect moral standard, His perfection of being, the wages of sin is what? Death. That's pretty specific, isn't it? And so how wonderful it is to know exactly what God demands of us. Can you, can you imagine standing before a judge with no inkling as to the laws by which you are expected to abide? And in such a case, despite the authority, the position afforded the person to pass sentence, we would never consider their decisions just, would we? For any actions we perform that failed to conform to the laws would be done in ignorance. Not out of obstinance, but in, this isn't the justice of God, is it? The God of the Bible, for His judgment is specific. And God's judgment is comprehensive. The God of the Bible's judgment is comprehensive. As Moses makes clear to Pharaoh, verse 5, there was not a one who stood under God's judgment that would be spared. From the highest to the lowest, God would act as He had promised to act. And church, while we may struggle, we may wrestle with reconciling how God's slaying of the firstborn of every family in Egypt was fair, what I believe is clear is that God acted faithfully and consistently. His standards didn't change, did they? He, he didn't act capriciously, but rather His judgment was comprehensive. And as we consider then our own standing before God, how amazing is it to know that we do so before a God whose judgment is comprehensive. He never reneges or overlooks or provides early release. And while we may think, well, wait a minute, isn't, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that exactly what we would want from a judge? And a judge who would overlook our faults will consider your sentiments were you the offended party. Would you feel a just or a judge just who let the person who'd harmed you off the hook? No, the, the God of the Bible judges justly as is evidenced by the fact that his judgment is specific, his judgment is comprehensive, but then thirdly, God's judgment is inevitable. God's judgment is inevitable. This tenth plague was promised, as we've seen, from the first. And despite the fact that it took time, and yes, a time marked by the deterioration of Israel's life circumstances, God did just as he said. And Emmanuel, I, I think this may be the most significant sign demonstrating the justice of God's judgment. For it means that what God has said, he will do. Any judgment delayed creates concern, doesn't it?
For if it fails to be fulfilled, then it can't be considered just. Nor, not to the ones who've been wronged, at least. And certainly a delay is relief to the ones condemned, but such a response wholly undermines the justice of the judgment, and it calls into the question the character of the one who passed judgment in the first place, doesn't it? And yet, the God of the Bible's judgment is inevitable. There's no skating around or, or ducking under God's judgment. And church, we all, like Pharaoh, stand under the just judgment of God. For the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3.23, For who? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a person alive who can be perfect as God is perfect. And therefore, we all stand before the judge of the universe deserving of death. That's the wage that we've seen is due to sinners. And since we know specifically what God will do and why, that not a one of us will be spared and that this just judgment is just and it's inevitable, we face a dilemma, don't we? All men and women face a dilemma. So who would have thought that God's just judgment would be the cause of humanity's ultimate crisis. And yet it is. And if this were all we knew about the God of the Bible, then we might as well live to enjoy life in the moment. For that's all the fulfillment that we could hope for. If all that we could anticipate was eternal punishment for failing to live up or to measure up to God's perfect standards, then why would we even try? We just might as well live large in the now. Get as much as we can from as many as you can from as, for as long as we can because in the end, we're toast. And if this is all that we could look forward to in light of the God of the Bible, then life would be all about me. I wouldn't care about you, but it's not. And in chapter 12, we encounter a divine provision of God, the Passover, in which I believe God reveals a glorious truth about himself, another glorious truth in which he saves graciously. The God of the Bible saves graciously. So would you look with me at Exodus 12 and find verse 1? Exodus 12 and verse 1, where we read these words. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be your old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, heads, legs, and inner parts. Don't leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Let me stop right there. Church, prior to God's gracious provision of this Passover, every firstborn in Egypt sat justly condemned. Not a person was exempt from his promised judgment. And God was under no obligation to provide one. As we've seen, his judgment was just, just as, as he had specified what he expected and what would happen if his expectations weren't met. His judgment was comprehensive with no one excused and his judgment was inevitable. No one twisted God's arm or, or forced this provision. The people had done nothing to merit. And in fact, if anything, since Moses had come and proclaimed his liberation message, the Israelites had only complained. And thus what we read about here was wholly unexpected. This was an act, a provision of God's grace and I believe in this text that we see three things that serve to illuminate the gracious nature of God's saving work. With the first being this, God's saving work is specific. Specific, just as we saw with God's judgment, so we see again with God's salvation. It is specific. And I believe that's clear in two senses. First, as regards to the instructions themselves. God's provision in this Passover wasn't some vague practice that anyone might accidentally perform without ever actually knowing it. You couldn't simply have a barbecue or get food truck lamb and somehow surprisingly have celebrated Passover. No. The instructions that God gave to his people were specific, were they not? They required intentionality and preparation. They demanded willful participation in God's plan, reflected by visible obedience to God's word. And church, the God of the Bible still saves in the same way today. For in the gospel, we discover that we can't save ourselves. We can't do enough, be good enough, or work hard enough to merit God's salvation, which is why he sent Jesus. God the Son came and lived among his fallen creation. And though like us in every way, he was perfect. And so he then, the perfect Lamb of God, took our deserved judgment upon himself and died on a cross. He he shed his blood so that God's wrath might pass over us. Therefore, whoever repents and believes in Jesus will not perish, but will have eternal life. Church, we're saved by God's grace through faith. This is specific. And thus, just as no one could accidentally find themselves celebrating the Passover, so neither will anyone find themselves welcomed into the presence of God by mistake. No one's going to come to the final judgment and hear themselves standing before the throne of God and hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest and go, wow, huh, i got to be honest, I really don't know where I am or why I heard those words, but cool. No, not at all. For salvation only comes when God graciously opens our eyes to our sinful condition, that we are broken and incapable of finding lasting peace on our own. We're then led to confess our sin to God and we repent, meaning we change. We, we change. Our hearts change their attitudes towards all that we used to do and be. Now, we're drawn to obey God's word. We hunger to worship with his people and to share about his love. The first sense in which I believe God's salvation was specific regarded the instructions. The second regarded the people. God's Passover wasn't for Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but for his chosen people. God specifically made provision for Israel. And we see that explicitly stated back in chapter 11 and verse 7, where the Lord says, But among the Israelites 
Not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Following his judgment and Israel's adherence to his Passover, there would be peace in Israel while Egypt would be devastated. And friends, God's salvation remains specific today. It isn't universal. In the end, despite what our Unitarian Universalist church down the street will tell you, we will not all be saved. For as Paul made clear in his response to the Philippian jailer's question of what must I do to be saved, he said, believe in who? The Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And as Peter then elaborated to the men in the Sanhedrin, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name given to men under heaven by which we may be saved. Church, that's specific. And so this means that unless your trust is in Jesus, your end will be like that of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. And doesn't this specificity simply enhance the gracious nature of our God's salvation? God's saving work is specific, and it's also comprehensive. It's comprehensive. The Passover provided all those who participated with complete protection from the promised destructive plague. It didn't partially spare or, or mostly cover. It saved entirely, didn't it? And church, again, how beautiful is God's grace and salvation as he doesn't simply start a work that in our lives that then we're responsible to complete. Rather, as Paul informed the church in Philippi, he who began a good work in you will what? Carry it on to completion. When? The day of Christ Jesus. Why? For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. This is why we work our salvation out. It's because God is the one who works it in us. God's gracious salvation doesn't leave us hanging. It doesn't carry us to the final mile of the race and then leave it to complete it on our own. God's salvation is comprehensive in that it saves us entirely. And it's also comprehensive in that it is entirely of God. The people didn't save themselves. All they did was what God told them to do. They contributed nothing to the Passover but adherence to its rules, right? None of the Israelites recommended revisions or modifications to God's plan. All they did was obey. And in the same way, church, God's grace in salvation is so beautifully pictured as he saves. And he saves completely by his gospel. It says the Apostle Paul writes that the gospel is the power of who? God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. What this means is that God is the one who saves by his grace in the gospel. But, but what about my faith, Andrew? Someone might ask. Paul says that I need to believe, right? Yes, and that's true. But we aren't saved by our faith. We're saved, as the Apostle Paul explained to the Ephesians, by grace through faith. In other words, our belief or faith is simply, as one pastor explains, wholehearted trust that God will keep his promise in the gospel. We, we don't assist God, church, in the saving process by our faith. We simply cling to his promise that he'll save us. And thus God's saving is holy of grace. It's specific, it's comprehensive. And then finally, God's salvation is inestimable. And that's a beautiful word. And it simply means that we cannot put a price tag 
on this act of grace. For if we could, it would cease to be grace, wouldn't it? Everything that God accomplished in the rescue of his people from Egypt was beyond cost. They couldn't pay God back. And for those of you who are familiar with the Bible story, then you'll know that that is exactly what the people tried to do, didn't they? And they failed miserably. For they weren't able to abide by the covenants that God made with them. They couldn't obey God's laws in their own strength and therefore earn God's grace and favor. The story of Israel following their exodus from Egypt is marked by whining, disobedience, insurrection, and sin. They could never repay God for His great grace in salvation. And church, neither can we. We don't deserve God's grace. We do nothing to merit His love. All that we can do is receive it as we place our trust in Him. Have you experienced God's grace in salvation? I pray that you have. Because the truth is that we all stand justly condemned before God for our sin. Every single one of us was born with a heart like Pharaoh's. Hearts that are hardened and at enmity, meaning we're at war with God. If we get our will, we would have nothing to do with God. That is the life into which we were born. David declared, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And as the God of the Bible judges justly, as we've seen, we can't escape his wrath on our own. We face eternal suffering if left to ourselves. If we were allowed to get what we willed, we would never have anything to do with God and would therefore suffer for eternity. But thanks be to God that he saves graciously. I pray that if you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, that you would do that today. For not a one of us is guaranteed tomorrow. Over the past two weeks, we've met on Saturday to celebrate the lives of special parts of our family who are no longer with us. In some cases, that journey's end had a sense of the temporal. In others, it came as a shock. We praise God that they're with Jesus. But we are not guaranteed tomorrow. And therefore, if you have never stood before your church family and acknowledged your needs of Jesus, I hope and pray you would do that today. But friends, for those of us who are family, who are already resting in God's grace through faith, I pray that you've been reminded this morning of just how incredible the gospel is and how desperately we need that gospel every single day. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, you are a God who loves. And we've experienced this love, but Father, we know you are love because your word says you are. And because you broke into history at a specific time, in a specific place, for a specific purpose to save your people from sin. Father, the gospel is not mere spiritual hearsay. It's historical reality. We have your word that speaks to this truth. And therefore, our minds, as well as our hearts, engage in new life. Faith is not something blind. For we can see and know the emptiness in which we're born. 
each and every person here, no matter our life circumstances, apart from life in Christ, have an emptiness, have a hunger, have an itch that we can't scratch. And we hear this truth, and it speaks to us. It makes our minds turn. It makes our hearts move. And we come to realize there's something here. And that is because only God, you, can bring life to that which is dead. And I pray that you would this morning, Father. For it's one thing to grow up in a home where we've heard this truth and simply assumed by by nature of being born into a certain setting that this is ours as well. But God, you make clear that each and every one will stand to account for our actions. We won't stand sheltered by the faith of our family. And Father, if there is anyone today who has yet to do that, God, we don't know about tomorrow, but we do know about today. Thank you for your Passover, for the Lamb who is Jesus. And Father, we've celebrated that meal in the new covenant. So thank you for your great grace in our lives, God, how you sustain us every day. And I pray that if there are those of us who need to to stand for Christ and have sensed your leading in that direction, God, would you strengthen? And for we who do already love you, God, thank you for a reminder of the great grace that you have shown us in Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.